don't know what happened to my bulletin. Oh, there it is. So Isaiah chapter 60, if you're using a pew Bible, 619. We will also, again, spend a little time in Haggai. So in your, if you use a pew Bible, you'll find Haggai on page 791. So if you'll maybe turn to both of those spots, there'll be a few other spots besides, but those will be the two main spots, Isaiah 60 on 619 and Haggai chapter 2 on page 791. In chapters 60 to 62 of Isaiah, we're at a very high point. I've said that now for several weeks. Uh, In Isaiah chapters 60, 61, and 62, these are chapters that are telling us of the tremendous success of the Lord's own arm working salvation for himself. Back in Isaiah chapter 59, as the chapter ended, the Lord looked around and saw that there was nobody that was going to do this. Nobody was going to save his people. There was no man. It's kind of like in Revelation where John looked around and who will open the seven seals? He looked around and nobody was found on heaven or on earth that could open the seven seals. In the same way in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord looks and there's nobody that can deliver his people. Not only is there no individual that can deliver his people, there's no individual that can deliver himself. And so the Lord determines to work salvation for himself. With what result? Isaiah chapter 60, 61, and 62. In Isaiah chapter 60, we've listened to it. I read it once. Another time we listened to it. I'm not going to read the entire chapter again. I will somewhat assume that you have some familiarity with that chapter. But it's a song or a a chapter that extols the result of the Lord working salvation, particularly in Jerusalem. So there's these five results. Number one, which is the most important result always, is that the Lord is glorified. Number two, Jerusalem is exalted. Number three, Jerusalem's children come back to Jerusalem. They've been scattered in exile. They've been scattered to the, uh, in, in uh, Isaiah's, or actually in Jeremiah's day, they'd been taken into exile into Babylon. But after that, in, after the Romans destroyed a second temple, the Jews were scattered over the four corners of the earth. But there's a regathering of Jerusalem's children in Jerusalem. Number four, Jerusalem's temple is beautified and glorified. And then the fifth result is even Gentiles are included in the Lord's own arm working salvation for himself. Now, Of these five results, the one that we spent a little bit more time on than the others a couple weeks ago was this idea of Jerusalem's temple being beautified and glorified. Uh, We looked at, we surveyed in the Old Testament how the Lord's glory uh, was demonstrated, the Lord's glory signaling divine presence with his people. It's not simply a, a light show, it's a It's a symbol of the Lord's presence with his people. And the first time it shows up so far as the Lord in regard to his people, the Israelites, was when the Lord uh, provided them manna from heaven after they were grumbling. Tomorrow, the Lord told Moses, they will see my glory. I will rain down manna from heaven and I will feed them. and, And that will last for 40 years, six days a week. They see the Lord's glory. We also saw that when the tabernacle was built uh, by Moses as prescribed by the Lord, that when it was finished, the Lord's glory came down on that tabernacle and indwelt the most holy place. And the 
glory was associated with a cloud expressing, I think, the hiddenness of God. That however much they had the Lord's glory, the divine presence which the Gentile nations didn't have, in some sense it was still a hidden glory because no man looks on the fullness of God's glory and love. And then almost 400 years later, Solomon builds a temple as prescribed by, as permitted by the Lord, as prescribed by David, kind of after the pattern of the tabernacle, about twice as big. And the Lord's glory fills the most holy place in the, te- in the Lord's temple. So that uh, no, everybody's uh, taken aback by the glory filling the Lord's temple. And then 373 years later, in Ezekiel, we read about the Lord's glory departing from that temple. Now, a side note before I read those verses that are on that little brown sheet in your, in your bulletin insert, if I can find mine, which is right here, we're going to read about the Lord's glory departing from, from uh, the temple in, according to Ezekiel. These are verses we dealt with last week, but before I get there, let me talk about the Shekinah glory, because that came up, actually it came up in Sunday school. It also came up Sunday morning a couple weeks ago. The word Shekinah is a good Hebrew word. It's not a biblical word. I, thought, I think that's fascinating. The word Shekinah nowhere occurs in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word, and the, and the word Shekinah means one who dwells or that which dwells. So when we talk about the Shekinah glory of God... It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical concept because the glory of God, the presence of God, dwelt with his people, so that is Shekinah, but the word is never used in the Bible, uh, which I thought was a little bit fascinating. But that glory departed from the temple in Ezekiel's day. Now, Ezekiel wasn't in Jerusalem, but Ezekiel was transported by a vision from Babylon, where he'd already been taken exile, back to Jerusalem, and in Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10 and 11, Ezekiel is shown the atrocities that are taking place in the temple that Solomon built, the idolatries and the abominations that are taking place. And in chapter 8, the Lord shows Ezekiel something, and it's awful, and the Lord says it's worse than that. And then the Lord shows him a second scene, and Ezekiel's appalled, and the Lord says it's worse than that. And he keeps, the Lord shows him, I think it's four pictures, it might be three. I didn't review it this week. But the Lord keeps showing Ezekiel how bad it is in, in the temple that Solomon built that was supposed to be for the glory of the Lord's name. So on that bulletin insert, you've got a series of verses showing the Lord's glory departing from that temple. And once the Lord's glory departs, that temple is ripe for destruction. The Babylonians will, in fact, destroy the temple. So in, in chapter 8, verse 4... In the midst of these abominations and idolatries, Ezekiel says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. They are are performing these atrocities and abominations, and their sinfulness is on full display right before the glory of God. Chapter 9, the first part of verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested, to the threshold of the house. That's uh, the, the cherub that were fashioned on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's repeated in chapter 10 and verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. 
and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Then in chapter 10 and verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. It's not the cherubs that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but it's on top of the actual cherubim, these living beings that are before the presence of God. And then in 11, chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So the Lord's glory incrementally departs from the divine presence which is in this most holy place. It incrementally departs and leaves to the east of the city, which is that that works out well because that is east. It leaves to the east of the city. And with that, the glory of the Lord has departed from his people. It's, uh, uh, it's almost, it's, it's with, it seems great, uh, I don't know, passion's not the right word. It's, it's with great affection that the Lord's glory departs from his people. His presence has been with his people ever since Moses and Aaron, all through the judges, all through the kings, all through these hundreds of years, the Lord's glory with, was, the Lord's glory was with his people, and now it slowly departs, and the people, the city, the temple will be judged. So with that, you've got a prophecy in Haggai. Uh, so if you've got Haggai handy, turn to page 791, and let's talk about this second temple that was built. The foundation was laid, but the people got lazy, and they hadn't uh, finished the temple. And so the Lord sends Haggai and Zechariah to uh, admonish the people and tell them they need to finish the temple. And in Haggai chapter 2, it's a famous passage. Uh, It's also a passage I've read now for several weeks, so you should be somewhat familiar with it. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to skip around. Verse 3, the Lord's, or Haggai says, giving the Lord's message, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Skip down to verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house. With glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So, how was that prophecy fulfilled? How, when, and where was that prophecy fulfilled? Because I told you two weeks ago, you will search in vain in your Bible, to find that the Lord ever filled that second temple with glory like he filled the first temple. You will search in vain to ever find that the Lord filled that second temple with the same glory that came down and filled Solomon's temple. And yet the Lord says to Haggai, this glory of this house will be greater than the former house. How does that work? Well, this is something I want to explore about prophecy. And... I'm going to start with, uh, I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you some parameters 
and tell you some things that don't answer, that don't provide answers to questions. Uh, they just provide boundaries for thinking. So my first principle that I'm going to share with you is uh, I'm going to reduce things because I'm limited space. I'm going to say I should add word. The, my, under, my own understanding of prophecy is a work in progress. Uh, what I mean by that is I'm not completely satisfied with any one method of understanding biblical prophecy. I'm not satisfied with it, nor am I convinced by it. It does not mean there isn't one right answer. I think it's more likely that lots of traditions have a certain understanding, but not a full understanding, not a complete understanding. But it's possible that there really is one right answer, and I'm just not, I'm too dense to get it, because for me it's a work in progress. I've got my own biases, I've got my own prejudices, I've got the own... My, the way I've been raised, and so I have a certain lens through which I think I understand prophecy, but I don't find it completely satisfying. And I'm not convinced by anything that I read uh, as being completely satisfying. So I, for me, it's a work in progress. What at least that means is that we should extend a certain amount of grace where we differ. Your understanding of biblical prophecy, how things are fulfilled, when they were fulfilled, it may be a little different from mine, grace to you and grace to me too. When it's all said and done, we'll find out what the truth was. Point number two um, is going to be a boundary. This is one of my boundaries. My boundary for understanding biblical prophecy is that Not all prophecy is fulfilled by the church. I just can't buy into the idea that all of the prophecies that God gave to his people, Israel, are all now fulfilled by a new Israel, the church. I just don't buy it. I can't see it. I think there's too many places where God, hundreds of places, possibly thousands, I didn't count them, I didn't have that much time, but there's hundreds of places where God is very specific about his people returning to this land, this city, this place, and you will worship me in in this way. And it's also specific. I can't imagine that that's comfort to those people in that they're meant to understand one day there's going to be this new Israel, this new church, and they're going to fulfill everything that you didn't. That just doesn't resonate with me as being true. It does not mean that the church on some level isn't fulfilling prophecy. I think the church is. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the new covenant. That's that's prophetic. That's prophecy. We are celebrating something that was promised to Israel. So the church in some level certainly is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, but I don't think they fulfill it all. I'm, I'm just not convinced nor satisfied by that. Number three. Number three. This is one we'll spend a little more time on. Prophecy often comes in waves. It comes... I've got a couple other words there, but I forgot them. Oh. It comes in layers. It comes in shadows. I think that's terribly important. What I mean by that is when God gives a prophecy, it often is fulfilled layer upon layer. There's a shadow. There's an ultimate fulfillment. It's not like, was it then or was it this time? Was it this time or this time? 
Or the third time, I think it's layer upon layer. Wave upon wave, God is fulfilling what he said. Let me give you a really good example. Um, For some people, it's really controversial, though I really don't understand why it would be. There's a very famous passage in the Gospels uh, before Jesus was born. And an angel visits Joseph because Joseph is determined to put away his wife because he believes she has been, she's already fornicated. And an angel visits Joseph and says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel is, or maybe Matthew the commentator says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about Isaiah chapter 7. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, that the virgin Mary would conceive and bear a child who is God with us. The incarnate, the incarnate Christ would be born into humanity, and that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. But before it's fulfilled and culminates in that, that prophecy had real meaning 700 years earlier in Isaiah's day. Now, I've got to keep this really short, because there's a lot. I, I really want to finish this up today, and I'm running out of time. So, in Isaiah's day, 700 years earlier, Isaiah is a prophet. Ahaz is king of Judah. And Ahaz, the Bible describes it as he's his, I can't remember exactly the language, but he is like a leaf shaking in the wind. He is scared to death because there are two kings that are intent on destroying Judah, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, or Aram, depending on your Bible version. These two kings have allied themselves. They are going to wipe Judah off the face of the earth. And Isaiah says, here's the word of the Lord. Don't worry. You don't need to worry about those two kings the Lord is going to take care of it. They are nothing. They're going to be complete. They're going to be nothing in just, a, I forget how, what the time frame is. In a short time, uh, nobody's going to be worrying about those two kings. And then Isaiah comes back to Ahaz and says, in fact, the Lord says, ask for a sign that his word is true. You can ask for a sign, anything on earth, anything in the heavens. You just ask for a sign that God is going to keep his word. And you know what Ahaz says? I will not ask the Lord for a sign. I won't do it. I don't know if he thinks, whatever the Lord has to say, it's irrelevant to my life. Or maybe it's like somebody who says, misunderstands scripture and says, I'm not going to pray about things because God is sovereign and provident. His his providential will rules. God's going to do whatever he does anyway. He sovereignly rules. Why would I pray about that thing? You pray about that thing because God says to pray. When God says to ask for a sign... Ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So Isaiah says, well, behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah doesn't mean, Ahaz, here's your sign. 700 years from now, probably 650 years after you're dead, you're going to know. No. What it means is, in Ahaz's day... There is going to be a virgin who doesn't miraculously conceive. She will conceive the old-fashioned way, but she will bear a child. Right now, she's not even in a relationship. But that will happen. 
She will bear a child, and you will know the, the Lord's will be, will be performed. And that is what happens. So there's, a, there's an initial fulfillment of the prophecy. But it didn't end there. It pointed to the fact that Christ one day would be born. That's the culmination. Layer upon layer. It starts getting fulfilled this way, but it's only a picture of something bigger and better later to come. All right. Um, So let's talk about Haggai. Haggai says the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. How is that fulfilled? I'm going to say, I will suggest that regarding this temple, there is a near fulfillment, there is a future fulfillment, and there is an ultimate fulfillment. At least those three. The glory of this house will be great. I'm going to shake the nations. They're going to bring their wealth to you. What's the near fulfillment of that? Turning your Bible to Ezra. Ezra, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it starting on page 389. If you're not using a pew Bible, after you find 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you will find the book of Ezra. So turn to Ezra chapter 1. Here's the near fulfillment of glory being brought to this temple. Ezra chapter 1. And I'm just going to pick right up at verse 2. Ezra chapter 1 verse 2 reads this way. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered." That's a fulfillment of what the Lord said he was going to do. I'm going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to fill it with the treasures of the nations. That's how it started getting fulfilled. Way back in Ezra chapter 1. You could turn to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. And verse 6. The work on the temple stopped and then it got restarted. There was some question whether the Jews should be rebuilding this temple And so in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 6, word comes back from Darius or Darius, chapter 6, verse 6. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, let's call him, let's call him, um, oh my God, Shethar Bonanza. (laughs) And your associates with the governors who were in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God... Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. 
Moreover, I make a decree regarding that you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house. The cost is to be paid by these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. So again, it's reiterated that God is going to fill that house with glory, with treasure from the other nations. It's not going to be you having to to create this great fundraiser where where his own people have to provide for building the Lord's house. God says, I'm going to take care of it. That's the near fulfillment. That's the near fulfillment. The future fulfillment at least according to, uh, from the vantage point of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, the future fulfillment is one day the Lord's own Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, will walk in that temple, the temple courtyards. And by being in the temple complex, he is filling the Lord's house with glory. That's a greater fulfillment than what happened, what we just read in Ezra. Because however nice it was that they were given a blank check by the, by the emperor of Persia, greater than that is the Lord's own Messiah would walk in that temple. And, the, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of, as of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the Lord's glory in the temple. That's the future glory. The ultimate glory, I think, is yet to come. Um, Um, let me think what I want to cut out here. Um, um, let me see. Well, if I don't get back to it later, well, go to Zechariah. Just go to Zechariah. So toward the very end of the Old Testament, the next to the last book is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, I think, speaks a lot about this ultimate culminating prophetic plan of the Lord for his people. It's found in Zechariah. It's it's hard to know even where to begin, but I'm going to say Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14. I'm going to pick out some stuff. So it's the next to the last book of the Old Testament. So before Matthew, the last book is Malachi, and then you've got 400 years of silence. And before that, you've got Zechariah. Zechariah is a fascinating book. It's actually a book we did probably on Sunday nights. I'd have to double-check to find out when we did it. But it's a fascinating book. And if I were to pick out some things, and and I'm just going to plant some thoughts in your head for you to think about on your own, probably most of all. One of the things you want to look for, especially in chapters 12, 13, and 14, is the phrase, on that day. On that day. And when it talks about uh, on that day, I think it's talking about an ultimate fulfillment. On that day. It's talking about something that wasn't fulfilled in Ezra's day. It's not even talking about something that was fulfilled when Jesus graced the temple. It's talking about some ultimate.
ultimate culminating plan of God for his people and Jerusalem and the temple on that day. So in uh, chapter 12, well, start, I'm going to start at verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day... The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the the plain of Megiddo. That goes on in chapter 13. and, And then again, especially in chapter 14, there's a lot of on that day. And I don't have time for all those on that days. But what's described on that day, it wasn't fulfilled in the near future or the future of Jesus' day. I think it's talking about an ultimate culmination, an ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's purposes for his people, uh, the Jews, for Israel, for Jerusalem, for the temple on that day. Through those chapters, I don't think there's any other way to look at it other than it has not yet been fulfilled. But here's where I want to go next. I'm going to get rid of this. And I'm going to say, in addition to this idea of prophecy being fulfilled in waves and in layers and with shadows, is that one of the things you will see fulfilled over and over again is a series of antagonists and a series of protagonists. An antagonist is bad, a protagonist is good. And you're going to see this. In other words, the Bible tells in some sense, it it repeats the story over and over and over again. These individuals or these nations that align themselves against God and against his purposes. And, And God always wins the day. 
and it's fulfilled historically over and over again, it ultimately will be fulfilled in that, in that culminating, the end of the age and entering into an age uh, where there is no unrighteousness and there is no sin. It will ultimately be fulfilled like that. But until then, it's fulfilled over and over and over again in history. Let me give you some examples. One of the first uh, notable oppositions to God is at the Tower of Babel. We will make ourselves a name against God. We don't need God to tell us what to do. We'll make for ourselves a name. And God scatters them. And then you've got Babylon popping up again. They're the ones that destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take the Jews into captivity. And then in Revelation 18, you've got Babylon popping up yet again. Because Babylon is, is a name, is an antagonist representing all that is set against God. And Babylon wasn't just one. Decatur is Babylon. Illinois is Babylon. The United States is Babylon. There's no place on God's earth where there aren't people that are setting themselves against God, saying, we don't need God to define who we are and to give us purpose. That's Babylon. And there's times I look a lot like Babylon in my own heart when I, when I rebel against God's purposes or God's will. That's Babylon in me. But I'm a new man, that's not who I am, but sometimes I look like Babylon. So Babylon crops up over and over again. Nebuchadnezzar is this key individual set against God, and God humbles him. Nebuchadnezzar, did I say Nebuchadnezzar? Pharaoh. First it's Pharaoh, then it's Nebuchadnezzar. And then Paul talks about this man of sin that sets himself against God, and he seems to show up in Revelation. He's popularly known in a in a future eschatology, as Antichrist. Though he's not really named exactly like that, but he's like Nebuchadnezzar. He's like Pharaoh. He's like Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who's very much described in the book of Daniel as somebody who goes into the Jewish temple and, and he's going to offer pig's blood on the altar and there's the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a type of Antichrist. Type of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a type of Pharaoh. These antagonists crop up over and over and over again, but God keeps winning the day because his plan will prevail for his people. His purposes of redemption and judgment will triumph. And we know they will because we've already seen it happen over and over in the Bible, which should give us confidence knowing that this world is not going to suffer at the hands of men at the end of the day. God's purposes prevail. He will accomplish all that he means to accomplish. Why do we worry? A mighty fortress is our God. <sighs> okay. Um, let's see where I'm at. Hmm. So how about Isaiah chapter 60? Go back to Isaiah chapter 60. Go back to Isaiah chapter 60. There's a, it's a lofty chapter. It's mostly about Jerusalem. And when and how was it fulfilled? I will suggest that there were layers of fulfillment early, but the ultimate fulfillment has not yet been realized. What Isaiah chapter 60 prophesies, what it promises is something that is still future, though there have been layers in which we've seen some taste of that fulfillment. So I'm going to jump in at verse... Oh my, I guess... 15, chapter 60, verse 15. 
The Lord says, whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace, your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more your light shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. Well, what's promised there is pretty grandiose. It's pretty lofty. No more everlasting, age to age. Your mourning will be ended. I don't think that was fulfilled when the Jews left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem. That was all nothing but rubble, and they started rebuilding the temple. I don't think all the world was celebrating that little bit of return. It didn't even make the news in most newspapers across the Roman world, or not the Roman world, but the the Persian world. Um, But there were tastes of of Isaiah chapter 60 being fulfilled. Let me give you some examples. Well, one would be, we've already read, we know that when the Jews did return from Babylon, where they'd been exiled to Jerusalem, they were given a blank check. That's kind of a fulfillment, a little bit of a fulfillment. We also know that there was a, a, a way that that was pictured even before Israel's day. Remember when the Israelites first left, left Egypt where they were slaves and Pharaoh said, uh, or actually the Lord said, they're going to give you their treasures when you leave Egypt. And so when those Hebrews left Egypt, the Egyptians were pushing their silver and their gold on the Israelites. Take it, it's yours. They were so sick of the plagues. They were so sick of the judgment of God. That's that's kind of a fulfillment, a a foretaste of what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60. What about when Jesus was born? There were some wise men, some magi from the east that came bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think that's kind of a a fulfillment. Not the ultimate. I don't think that, that can accomplish all that Isaiah 60 says, but it gives you a little bit of a taste. Um, hmm. I'm going to throw it open for comments and questions. I'm not quite done. I've got a good controversial part coming up, but I'm not sure if I should wait. Are there any? Go? Okay. All right, here, here's, where, here's where I'm going to go with this. Um, I think, how did prophets communicate their message? There were, there were different ways they communicated their message, but it was always difficult. One of, the ways, one of the reasons why it was difficult is imagine that you were a pilgrim on the Mayflower 400 years earlier than now. You came across the Atlantic Ocean. You were a pilgrim in, in Plymouth Colony. And, and you, by 
God's design had a vision of what life would be like in America in 2021. And you are tasked with trying to communicate what life is going to be like in 2021 to, to the pilgrims that had just crossed on a little wooden boat with sails, the Atlantic Ocean, and they're in this little colony where many of them are going to die. And how in the world do you even begin to describe what you see? I mean, ships that are, you can't even imagine how big these ships are and what you can do on these ships. You can't imagine the, the things that will fly through the air carrying, I mean, we just flew to Albuquerque, and I'm always amazed, like, all these people with their luggage, and we're all sitting in these chairs, and how does that plane get up there? I will never understand that. I don't understand electricity. How, do you understand, how would you explain electricity to people 400 years ago? You're going to be able to plug these, take this little thing, and you, you stick it in the wall, and it's going to run all these contracts. It'll wash your clothes. It'll dry your clothes. I mean, we're going to have cool air coming. How do you even explain? Like, what does that look like? The task is monumental. How does a prophet explain that stuff? One of the things he might do is he'll just tell you what I saw. And isn't you're He would say, I know this isn't going to make sense, but I'm telling you, this is what I saw. And this is what the Lord told me to tell you. So I'm going to tell it to you, and you're going to be confused, but it's true. An example of that is Ezekiel. So here's what Ezekiel, here's how Ezekiel, however many chapters it is, I think it's got to be in the 40s, right? Ezekiel starts off with him describing his vision of the Lord. And you tell me if it makes sense. Ezekiel chapter 1. In my thirtieth year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the river Kiba, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. I looked, and I saw a violent storm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like Four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upwards, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures, It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. 
This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, if you got all that, and you can picture in your mind's eye these four living creatures with four faces, with wings, sets of wings, and they're moving, but they're never really turning, and there's a wheel, and the wheel has, has eyes all around, and, and all of the imagery, it's like, I think he's, he's not making this up. This is literally what he saw, but it's really hard to get. It's really hard to understand. Sometimes that's what the prophets do. They're like, I know you're not going to get this, but I've got to tell you, this is what happened. Another thing the prophets do, and I'm pretty much going to end on this point, another thing the prophets do is they describe something prophetic, something that's coming, but they do it with familiar terms where you're at or with what you know in your past. So that in Zechariah, when it talks about this, what I take is this ultimate culmination of God's purposes of redemption and judgment against all the nations. And God talks about destroying their chariots and, and these things that... We're in 2021, nobody's fighting with chariots. Nobody's, nobody's carrying their armies into horses. Now, some, you know, some people that are very literalistic are like, well, I think we'll go back to the day if it's chariots, there's going to be chariots and horses. 
and there's going to be mules and donkeys, and that's how armies are going to fight. Or maybe, maybe they're just telling you using language that you're familiar with. Because if they were trying to describe images like Ezekiel just did, you would be like, I'm not sure what I understood. So a lot of times in Scripture, I think what the prophets do is they're describing something future using familiar images for right now or for images in your past. So lots of times when God delivers, he, he uses language like when he overthrew Sea and the, the sea swallowed up the army, and the overthrew the ar- and he overthrew that that world power. I don't think that's always the way God gains his victories, but that's familiar language to the Hebrews. That's what he used. I think this happens a lot, and if I had time, I would give you probably some more specific examples of that. But I'll end with this. Remember in Ezekiel how the glory departed, and it went out the east. That's not the end of the glory story. Because in Ezekiel, starting in chapter 40, and really there's a little backstory before that, the glory returns from the east. The glory returns to a temple that's described in chapters 40 and 41 and 42. And, a new, and this other refurbished Jerusalem is also described in those chapters. And the glory returns. So it's not the end of the story. And what am I to make of that? I told you that one of my boundaries is I can't believe that the church fulfills all those prophecies. Another boundary I have, another boundary I have is that I cannot believe the temple is so literal they're offering animal sacrifices. I just can't go there. I mean, we just talked about in Sunday school how Christ fulfilled the law, including the sacrifices. In Ezekiel's temple, this temple which nobody's ever seen this temple exist, So, the idea is that it's either a very literal future temple, but I'm just not buying that they're offering sin sacrifices in that temple. I just can't do it. I stumble at that. I think it's imagery. I I think Ezekiel is describing something, this ideal, what it would be like if God's presence were with us and we worshiped him as we were called to worship him, that's what it would look like, but I don't think they're offering sin sacrifices. That there's a time in the new age where they're going to slaughter animals on an altar? That blood is still going to be shed and sprinkled? I, I mean, if God does it that way, it's God's business, it's not my problem, but I'm, I, I struggle with that. I, so I'm somewhere between, I don't see the church fulfilling all this, I also don't see, see it as so literal that they're sacrificing animals in a millennial temple. So where does that leave me? I don't know. I just know I can't go either one of those two places. And I gave you a chance for comments and questions earlier, and now you're out of time, so you'll have to post them on the front doors. Uh, No more than 95. Let's stand and be dismissed.